week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wolman. Hello, Dr. Wolman. Oh, there's my bag. There's, <laughs> there's the bag, my Christy. doctor's bag. Yeah, and we're going inside the bag. <laughs> yes, yes, the fun times when we don't know quite what we're getting into, but we're just jumping in, aren't we? <laughs> that's the way we do it. That's how that's how medicine is. You know, when I worked in the emergency department, I never knew who was coming in with what at any time. Yes. So it was always like that. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. Mm. Ooh, I love optimal health. Yes. We are in that galaxy. Now, yes. now, I want to tell everyone at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question, make a comment, just simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Or if um, you would like, we please, please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. You know, be sure to leave your contact information so that we can reply to you and um, give you any feedback that you're looking for. Thank you. Let's jump into that bag. <laughs> Going into the bag. Before we do that, you know, people always say to me, what happens if we're listening to the show, you know, weeks from whenever the show was actually put on mm -hmm. and we still have a question. So people can call in or write in uh, at, at any time yes. and we, we will get back to you, even if it's a question on a show we did a year ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we will definitely make it a point to do that. So yes. either way, type it in or give us a call. Yep. So today, Christina, I'm thinking about uh, a couple of things. Just uh, a lot of times when we go inside the doctor's bag, I may have one specific topic, and I want to rant about that for our, uh, the entire hour. But every once in a while, I like to break it up into a couple of segments. Mm -hmm. And uh, today, I decided to do that also. So we're going to have three segments today. One is going to be a fun segment on some medical terms. Uh, just some of them are things that bug me occasionally, but a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> there are medical terms that bug you? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually. And then a couple of the terms might be uh, useful to save time in an emergency department mm. because sometimes people use one term that they think is the correct term, and doctors... And nurses usually think in other terms, so yes. it takes a couple of minutes sometimes to clarify where we're going. And this is very important, especially if we're trying to make a diagnosis on someone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the third part, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. You know, there's a big trend going around. Uh, I'm sure anybody that's on Facebook and social media is watching people pour uh, buckets of solid water on themselves and uh, making money for disease, ALS, mm -hmm. Lou oh, Gehrig disease. Ice, ice bucket challenge or something like that, they've been calling it. Exactly, the ice bucket challenge. And so 
I thought it might be a good idea, you know, with everybody pouring buckets of hard water on themselves, <laughs> that it, it might really be a good idea to know what um, <laughs> this, this disease is about. Uh, so, so we're going to talk about that for a little while great. today. Okay. What do you think? Very good. I am excited. I'm uh, excited with all those levels. Mm. Okay. Excellent. So we'll move on. And if you have any questions about any of it, obviously, at any point, let me know. Very good. So the first one, uh, in terms of medical terms, uh, most of the time we use the word the holes in our nose. Uh, we usually call them nostrils, right? Most people <laughs> say nostrils. And nostrils are usually referred to when you're talking about horses. The actual term is called nares. N-A-R-E-S. The singular is N-A-R-I-S, nares. But the the holes in your nose where you breathe through and take the air into your lungs should be called nares. So I just when you and this is, you know, this is mainly when you want to impress your doctor or nurse and say, well, I have a little infection in my nares or I have a discharge <laughs> from my nares other than my nostrils. Uh, and then they're going to go into a slew of other, other medical terms, right? <laughs> well, definitely. But, uh, you know, the more you listen to this show, maybe we'll make a... Uh, every, a dictionary? Uh, yeah, we'll have a dictionary here for medical terms. And then people will just get smarter and smarter, which is what we want from this show, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so we'll move to the uh, next one. And this is a this is kind of a favorite of mine. I like this one in a way. Uh, the word autopsy. Mm. Autopsy comes from the Greek. Auto is self, and the opsy is uh, the body. So it's it's essentially what they meant to say was it's it's about knowing or learning about the self. But when you use the word autopsy and auto. Auto usually means done by the self. So if you write an autobiography, you're writing your own biography. If something is done automatically, it's done by itself, right? Yes. And, and it would be quite difficult to do an autopsy on yourself, wouldn't uh, you think? I would like to try. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing I do not want to try. <laughs> right. right. Uh, it's, it's the common term, but the, the better word is actually necropsy, uh, huh. which which the which makes more sense. Necro is you know dead, and it's a study of the dead body. But and they use that actually in veterinary medicine. Um, when when you do a a post mortem on an animal, that's hmm. called a necropsy. So the vets use that term, but I think the term should also be used uh, by the humans. So. That, why? Why don't they? Uh, well, because, you know, we started out uh, with uh, Hippocrates and Asclepius, and, and we follow. Most of, our, most of our medical terms are Latin or Greek coming from those uh, times in the root. Mm -hmm. and, and at that time, it really meant a, it, it was a search of the self. They were trying to find, and the self represented the, the human or the body. Mm. So that's why they called it a, a finding out about the self. But mm. in, in modern days, where auto usually means that someone does it to or on or upon themselves, it would seem to me that it would be very impressive if you could do your own autopsy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I like the term necropsy. Mm -hmm. 
And so we'll go to the, uh, the next term. Uh, and the next term that I want to talk about is we have a number of cavities in our body. And I'm not talking about the type that we talk about in the teeth, although there is the oral <laughs> cavity. We have the, the cranial cavity, which is where the brain is stored. We have the thoracic cavity, which is where, which is the chest, where the heart and the lungs and, and the trachea and the esophagus are partly, and ribs are in that cavity. Uh, and then we have the abdominal cavity, which is where the stomach, the intestines are, gallbladder, below the diaphragm. And then we have the pelvic cavity. And of course, there are come up some other little cavities. But the big one I want to talk about today is the abdominal cavity. Most people refer to that as the stomach. Mm-hmm. And they say, I have a stomach ache. And so when they come to the doctor, I have a stomach ache. Now, for us, as a physician, when we hear the word stomach, we think of the actual organ, which is in the abdominal cavity, but it's not the entire area from the sternum or the breastbone down to the pubis, mm. pubic bone. So that whole area is, is actually called the abdominal cavity. So if you have a pain that's down below your belly button and you say, I have a stomach ache, the doctor is starting to think up around where your stomach is. And if you remember the, the uh, talk we gave uh, a while ago, another inside the doctor's bag where we talked about the anatomy, the stomach is up near the left upper quadrant of the abdominal cavity. So if you actually do have a stomach ache, it's appropriate to say, I have a stomach ache or my stomach hurts. If you know you have an ulcer uh, or you just ate something bad and you're having some heartburn up in, up in your stomach and you say, I have a stomach ache, that would be correct. But many times people say, I have a stomach ache and it could be an appendix. So it's really an abdominal ache. And then it's up to the doctor or the nurse to find out what part of the abdominal cavity uh, is the pain. Hmm. Got that? Yeah. Abdominal pain. Yeah. Or abdominal cavity. So nobody should go into their doctor saying, I have a stomach ache anymore, unless, <laughs> unless they have a stomach ache. <laughs> <laughs> but just remember, the stomach is actually the organ. The abdominal cavity is the whole area. Mm. Okay, that's great. We're good? Yep. Okay, we're okay. moving along because we got lots of things to cover today. <laughs> the, the one that I usually have the most problem with when I'm speaking with a patient is someone says, uh, I feel dizzy. Mm. Now, there's a difference between lightheadedness and dizziness. Now, technically, the terms can be used uh, interactively, or you can use either one, but, but each one could be caused by different problems. So whenever somebody comes to me and says, I feel dizzy, I have to spend the next three to four minutes first describing to them whether they, what I, what lightheadedness or dizziness is. And then I describe what lightheadedness might be and what dizziness might be. And then I ask them again, so now which are you? And they go, oh, lightheaded. And the reason that this is important is because there's a whole different set of problems that are caused by one versus the other. And so let's just go over those for a couple of moments. I don't know uh, how you are when you say something like, I'm lightheaded or dizzy, but 
Many people will say one and they mean the other. So mm-hmm. lightheadedness is usually that feeling as if you want to faint. Uh, and a lot of times you get that feeling if you're lying down, you sit up quickly or you're sitting and then you stand up quickly and you feel the blood is rushing away from your head and mm-hmm. you want to sit back down for a moment or two. That is a feeling of lightheadedness. And it, it could be accompanied by dizziness, certainly. It could be occurred by blurred vision, uh, a loss of balance, a number of things. Just like being dizzy can, be ca- can cause uh, vision changes or loss of balance or disequilibrium. But usually when someone is lightheaded, meaning they want to faint, it's usually caused by things that are maybe dehydration, not enough fluid in the body, or if somebody is in shock and they're bleeding somewhere and losing blood, so a lot of blood is not going to the heart or the brain or other organs. And uh, at that time, you feel like you want to faint, and it's the body's way of saying, lie down. I, I don't have enough pressure to get the blood pumped up to uh, the brain. So when you lie down, you start to feel a little better. And there are lots of things that can cause the lightheadedness. As I said, your sugar could be low, blood sugar or glucose could be low. You could be on some medications, you could be drinking some alcohol. Uh, you could be sick, you could be having a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. But that's lightheadedness. Dizziness usually and vertigo, sometimes they're interrelated. This is, re- this is when the room appears to be actually spinning around. Uh, you can see or you feel like the room is just moving around, and it actually isn't. So if you're on a, uh, a merry-go-round and you're spinning around, then you're not, you're not dizzy because that's appropriate. But if you're standing still or sitting still and the room appears to be spinning around in a certain direction, that's what we would call dizziness or potentially vertigo. And the reason that this is important is if someone is really complaining of dizziness or vertigo with the room spinning, then as a physician, I would start looking at the mid, the inner ear as a problem or something up in the brain uh, or in the eyes where the focus isn't correct. Whereas if somebody complains of lightheadedness, <clears throat> Then I have to start looking at, do they have blood loss? Is their blood pressure too low? Did they take a medication and drop their sugar very low? So does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So explain that to me then. Well, you know, th- this is so funny because uh, uh, in my youth, I was uh, had both of these symptoms a lot. <laughs> so I guess I was taught early on, the difference between dizzy and lightheadedness. And what were you taught? Uh, that Exactly what you were saying. Like lightheaded was, was like if you get up, because I would be lying down quite often if I get up, and, and it was, it's almost like I'm, everything's um, not spinning, but just blurry and wanting to fall back down again. Right. <laughs> you know, that was lightheaded, you know, and the dizziness... Uh, oh, that's that's was became so clear, especially after I was hit with a baseball, <laughs> and everything spun. <laughs> I was like, "Woohoo!" <laughs> you know those cartoons where where um, you'd see stars spinning right, around spinning your head, around and, all and it's of that. really funny because when you actually get hit, when you're not expecting something like that, you literally is like 
I, I don't know if it's how the eyes react and how <laughs> the light's coming in, but literally you're seeing these like spots spinning right. <laughs> at the same and time in all darkness, you know. Yeah, and there's that cartoon music that goes wah, wah, wah. <laughs> well, your ears are going wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and right. I mean, after I got hit that one time and I was a, a young teen, I thought, oh, those cartoons are perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, true. Yes, amazing. This this one's a, an important one because I think when you go into an emergency department or you're talking to your doctor and you're trying to explain a set of symptoms, the doctor is trying to figure out a differential diagnosis and they want to know, uh, we're trying to figure out where is the pathology. Mm. And by figuring out the pathology, then they can figure out the treatment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and if you say, I feel lightheaded, and you're actually the room is spinning around. They may start going through the whole wrong pathological tour. Mm-hmm, so you want mm-hmm. to be very clear, obviously, when you're speaking with your doctor. And the more of these shows you listen to, the more clear you're going to be. Mm. <clears throat> it's going to help in your diagnosis. Mm, interesting. Now vertigo. Yep. Yeah. Because when 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 one says that they have vertigo. That's usually dealing with height, is it not? No. It's not. Okay. No, vertigo is uh vertigo is also a dizziness. Hmm. Uh, but it's a feel it's also it's a characterized by a feeling of spinning and disequilibrium. Hmm. And disequilibrium again could be for a number of different reasons. That could be something in your feet. You're not you don't have any sensation in the bottoms of your feet, so it feels like you're not balanced, mm-hmm. or it could be something in a part of your brain that that uh, reacts to uh, certain parts of where you are in nature in terms of how you're spatially oriented. And so this dizziness feeling is much closer to vertigo. Vertigo is not like lightheadedness. I see. And, And the important thing is that if you do have any of these things and you can't figure out a reason for it, then it's very important to seek medical attention uh, quickly for this. And when you do seek the medical attention, you should be able to talk to your doctor and say, I just had a head injury two days ago, or uh, I've noticed blood in my stools, or uh, I was drinking a lot of alcohol, or nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to, if you, either one of those can be very serious, lightheadedness, just because it's light doesn't mean it's not serious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it could be caused by a heart attack, a stroke, abdo- you know, abdominal problems, a number of things. And we want to know uh, what it is. Now, dizziness, actually, the most common cause of dizziness is uh, what we call benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Hmm. And <laughs> benign meaning it's not, you know, it's not easy to go to medical school. I was going to say, what was that? <laughs> yeah. That's why we were in medical school for so long. We could probably learn everything in about a month, but it's all these terms that we have to go through. <laughs> Benign means it's, it's not really malignant or cancerous. Paroxysmal is a sudden onset, and positional means, depending on what position your head is in, you have this dizziness. And what they find is that uh, it's usually caused by a little, very small little stone, uh, almost the, the same concept of a kidney stone in a different area in the semicircular canals in the inner 
in the inner ear, there are three semicircular canals that are all oriented in different positions and fluid is going through them at all times and it's giving information to your brain that says it's almost like a GPS system. Mm. It tells you whether you're sitting upright or you're lying down or your head is bent over because these three uh, semicircular canals on each side of the brain are sending messages to different parts of the brain to tell you that you're okay. But if you have a stone or something that's interrupting that flow, it'll send out an abnormal signal and it will confuse the brain and give the sensation that you're spinning. Mm -hmm. And actually that spinning sensation is a hallucination. So many people that have taken hallucinatory drugs would would understand that. But people that say, oh, I've never hallucinated, I've never taken a a hallucinogen. Uh, Sometimes if you have the sensation of dizziness and spinning the room is spinning and it actually isn't that's a form of a hallucination mm-hmm. wow okay <laughs> <laughs> a lot was, more than we thought there would be in that, just simple little words huh? yes yes well it's it's great to be clear you know so clear when you walk in if you remember <laughs> yeah if you're if you're really <laughs> lightheaded or really spinning. busy <laughs> right. Right. room is spinning and i'm lightheaded right <laughs> And you could be both. You could have lightheadedness and, and have vertigo at the same time. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, enough of these words. Let's move on. Let's move away from words unless you have uh, a question about that. Oh, no, that. those are great words. Okay. Oh, are we done with the definitions right now? We're done with definitions, and now we're going to another area. Now we're going to numbers. Uh-oh. So we have words, <laughs> words and numbers. We're going to talk about certain measurements and dimensions in the body which I want to bring to people's attention, which may or may not help enhance your life with certain knowledge of certain measurements that you have. Mm. So what do you think I'm going to talk about, Christina? Oh, I have no idea. The only thing that comes to my mind when I think about measurements and, and things is, you know, children and how how they have certain calculations on how tall they will be when they right. measure their feet at two years old, you know, and, right. you know, th- that's, that's what comes to my mind when I think of measurements. Right. And that's what comes to a lot of people's minds. But I want to talk today a little bit about measurements inside the body that we take for granted certain things. Uh, but I think if people had more of an understanding of the size of things within inside the body, they may make life life decision uh, life decisions uh, a little differently than they would without knowing these measurements. And one of the things that I'm talking about, for example, are arteries. When we think about arteries, arteries are the things that uh, bring the blood from the heart to the organs and the cells in the body, and they bring oxygen and nutrients, and they care, and then it goes into veins, of course, and bringing the blood back to the heart. But the blood starts out pumped out of the heart in the largest artery in the body, called the aorta. You've heard of the aorta, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so the aorta. Uh, 
in terms of the internal diameter, and again, all of the measurements that I want to mention today, they're just they're just kind of within a ballpark. It varies with uh, age. It varies with sex. It varies with size of the person, number of variations, but within a ballpark figure, I just want you to picture this. So the, the blood leaves the heart through the aorta, and the aorta, when it starts out, is in, do you, know, do you remember which cavity it would be in? No. It's in the, <laughs> well, since we only talked about the abdominal cavity, but we mentioned the thoracic cavity. Oh, I see. Oh, that. Ca- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I thought you meant the cavities within the heart. <laughs> right. Oh, no. Yeah, hey, that's like, a very good point. Oh my gosh! I know we learned this once before. <laughs> right, Christina. I think we're going to have to have a uh, a test day every once in a while. Oh, please <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah, we won't do that. But uh, the Aorta leaves the heart out of the uh, left ventricle, and it pumps blood all around the body. And the first part of the aorta is in the thoracic cavity, and then it goes all the way down through the diaphragm and into the abdominal cavity, and it changes size. But the aorta, when it leaves the uh, heart, is about, and before I tell you this, people need to know the differences between centimeters, uh, the metric system, and in, in, in English we use the you know inches and feet, imperial, etc. What is that? Imperial. Imperial. Imperial is that measurements. You, uh, is that what you called it in England and Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah. Imperial measurements. <laughs> ah, right. So everybody should get out a a small ruler now and make sure that it has uh, inches and centimeters in it. But if you don't have a ruler. Uh, sometimes I use I use my thumb, and you would have to check out your thumb to measure it against the ruler at some point, so you always have a, a little indicator with you. But from the tip of the thumb, very tip of the thumb, to the very first, to the joint that it comes to first, that's about an inch for me. And in comparing an inch to a centimeter, there are actually two 0.5 centimeters in one inch. So a centimeter is much smaller than an inch. And a centimeter itself is divided up by millimeters. And there's 10 millimeters in one centimeter. So essentially, there's 25 millimeters in an inch. Okay? So as we're going through this, I just want you to picture that the size of what we're talking about. The first portion of the aorta which is the largest portion as it leaves the heart, is three centimeters in internal diameter. And this is, again, approximate. Three centimeters. So that's the, wow. total, the total amount of room that it takes that allows the blood to flow through. So anything that you do in your lifetime uh, that decreases that diameter, start picturing... Uh, less than three centimeters, down to two centimeters, down to a centimeter, and then that is going to be the diameter of the area where the blood comes out of the heart, and all that blood is still having to go to up to the brain and down to the toes. Now, as the as the aorta goes through the body and it goes into the abdominal cavity, uh, sometimes it goes down to about two centimeters, so it drops down a centimeter. So that's about 0.8 inches. 
pretty small, actually, mm. when you think about well, that. Point uh, three centimeters, but that's that's. I would think that I was thinking that was pretty large, Glenn, because that's you know you can only fit so much in the body. <laughs> no, no, that's right, and it's and it's okay. We're glad that it is uh, at least three centimeters, but yeah. if there are certain diseases and pathologies that can start shrinking that down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's important to just have that concept of how big it is when you start eating certain foods and getting stressed out. And if you have family history of diseases of arteries and uh, clamping down of the arteries or spasm mm-hmm. of the arteries, things like that. So you don't have much room to work with. Now, when the, when the aorta leaves the body, leaves the heart, excuse mm-hmm. me, the first arteries that come out of the aorta are the coronary arteries. So in other words, the heart recognizes that it needs to have its blood supply first before anything else gets a blood supply. So you have a number of arteries that leave the aorta and go right back into the heart. And these are the arteries, when we talk about the coronary arteries and you hear that someone has a coronary, right? Mm. That means that those arteries, one or more of those arteries, are decreasing in their internal diameter, so not enough blood is getting to the cells, which means not enough oxygen, so the cells in the heart start dying, and that's when someone has um, angina or a, or a heart attack. Mm. So when we talk about the coronary arteries, we're looking at about three to four millimeters. Wow. Yeah, which is not very much. So if you think over a lifetime that you want to keep that three to four millimeters as clean and clear as possible. If you start developing uh, plaque, uh, atherosclerosis, you've heard of those terms. Uh, If those start forming, those plaques start forming in the coronary artery, which starts out somewhere between three and 4.5 millimeters, and it starts going down more and more down to maybe even one millimeter or zero millimeters, that's when someone's going to have a heart attack and that's where it's serious. So it's important to just have a concept of they're not very big mm-hmm. and you got to take care of them. And that's, that's the whole idea of what I'm trying to talk about with these numbers today. Some of the things that we can be aware of that uh, we just take for granted that, oh yeah, our heart has a blood supply, but that blood supply is just, you know, <laughs> Three millimeters in diameter, and of course, now, now naturally, does uh, do these arteries shrink naturally as we get older? They don't actually shrink, but they they become less strong. And the arteries mm-hmm. have muscles in them, so they become weaker. Their elasticity, they actually sometimes can stretch. And this is the outside of the artery, but the inside of the artery. The diameter, the internal diameter, may shrink because of pathology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the plaques that we're talking about or yes. calcium or something like that. So the more things that come on the inside of the... It's uh, like a dirty drain. Exactly. And you, you could see what happens where things back up and mm-hmm. they don't move through. And if things aren't moving through and they're backing up, Wherever it backs up causes a, a dilation of that. So you can imagine if it backs up into your heart and your start, heart starts swelling up like a balloon, you don't want that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So the second set of arteries that come out uh, of the aorta are the carotid arteries. And these are the arteries that go directly up to the brain. Uh, actually, they have different names, but eventually it gets to the carotid arteries. Uh, and when they get up into the carotids, these arteries are somewhere between four millimeters and six millimeters in mm. diameter, internal diameter. And again, you know, it varies and it varies with age and sex and, and uh, body habitus and sometimes genetics, things like that. So you want to have a good, clean, clear uh, carotid on each side of your brain so that you make sure that enough blood supply is getting up there. And you see people with things called stenosis, uh, where the arteries start closing down for various reasons, sometimes inflammation, sometimes it could be trauma, sometimes it could be genetic. But if those arteries close down and you're already starting with only four millimeters, think of that how small that is, and then you're getting less and less and less, you're going to have some problems. And these are when people have strokes, and uh, then you have to go in and potentially uh, have surgery to open up the artery and to clean out the artery or to put in uh, a stent of some kind to make sure that it stays uh, open. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. All these, uh, nowadays it's... They, you go in, you have a stent put in, and you come out. <laughs> yeah, and it's I amazing think, these days what what is being done. I, I agree, and I think that in a way that's part of the problem for me. The way I see it is, I always have seen in the past where most people didn't care about their body, care about their health, because they always knew that the doctor, or the healthcare profession, would be there as the safety net, you know, when something goes wrong, I'm going to go to the doctor and they're hopefully going to fix it if I caught it in time. And the more technology we have, the better we get at anesthesia and surgery and types of surgery and instruments and prosthetic devices and a number of other things. And then when we start getting into stem cells and a number of other things, sometimes it, it, for me, it has people caring less and less because they know we can do more and more. So I'm going to abuse my body, and when I destroy my knee, you're just going to put in a new total knee. (laughs) But I think what I'm trying to do here is to get people on the preventive and prophylactic side to understand some of these things and make, make lifestyle choices to protect your body and the parts that are working so hard to give you a pleasant life. So moving away from the um, from the arteries, I want to talk about the skull for a few minutes. The oh. skull is a bone, you know, and we talked about the cranial cavity. The skull has multiple bones in it. It has a frontal bone, temporal bones on the side. The occipital bone is in the back. Parietal bones are on the sides also. And as I said, you got the frontal lobes. So these bones... The thickness of these bones range anywhere from four millimeters at its thinnest to about nine millimeters, uh, maybe a little more than nine millimeters. And again, nine millimeters is not even a centimeter, and one centimeter is not even an inch. So this is this is the thickness of something that's protecting your one of your most vital organs. And it's amazing to me how long it took for us as a society to start saying we need to wear helmets 
when, <laughs> when we're yes. doing, when we're driving or doing certain things or playing certain sports, we need to protect ourselves on the side, on the side of the head around the ear. Christina is uh, the temporal bone, mm-hmm. which is part of the skull. That's less than four millimeters, sometimes in the three millimeter range. And that's what's protecting you from a brain injury. Mm. So I think when, when parents are starting to think about their kids uh, riding an ATM or playing certain types of contact sports, start thinking about these dimensions and thinking how important the brain might be. And, and we're going to talk about the brain even more when we get into uh, our final topic in a little while. But different parts of the brain, the front and the back of the, of the skull uh, are the thickest. You know, the front of the skull is about six millimeters and the back is about eight or nine uh, millimeters. So those are the most protected, but the sides are the least protected. Now, now Glenn, as we talk about the skull, mm-hmm. um, what they, what I'd learned, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when a child is born, it's actually... It's like two plates that in time slowly emerge together. Is that right? There's multiple plates. Multiple plates, okay. Yeah, the the skull is not fused like it is as an adult. And Mm -hmm. that is because the brain has to grow. If you you had the size of a brain of a child, uh, that (laughs) was the adult brain, (laughs) that, that would, you know, offer some serious problems. Uh, and that does happen, actually, you know, but for the most part, the skull is made up of a number of different, the, the bones that we talked about, the frontal bone, the temporal bone, the occipital bone, the parietal bone, all of these are different parts that eventually come together and they fuse together at mm. once, once the brain has reached its size. And of course, there's pathology here, too, in every level, sometimes a bone doesn't fuse and there are problems with that that have to be uh, recognized mm. and then treated interesting so so with um i mean how long after because if a child's skull is not is still growing and it's still pliable that means the brain as it's growing is still quite exposed no um it's it's not quite exposed. I mean, the, the areas that we're talking about are micromillimeters. Mm. You know, so it's not really that the brain is exposed. Plus, there's tissue. There's multiple layers of tissue and fat and uh, some muscle that's also protecting the brain. Mm-hmm. So you do have other protections. But again, that you do bring up a very good point. It's very important uh, to... Uh, protect the skull and brain, especially in a young child. When the and and you as a parent, I don't know if you were exposed to this when you had your child, but there are two areas of the of the skull that are very soft. You can actually instead of uh, one's in the back and one's near the top, a little bit to the front. These are these open areas that are the main areas where the brain, the skull, comes together and fuses. But at the at birth. They're very soft. So you can, if you're palpating along the skull, you can feel bone, 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 bone. And then when you get to one of these areas, uh, it's very soft and you could push in on it. 
and obviously need to protect those areas mm-hmm. very carefully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That's the, our skull. Hmm. <laughs> the, the sternum, which is, a, you know, the bone right in front of the chest where the ribs attach, mm-hmm. that's right over where the heart is, protecting the heart. That's around 13 to 16 millimeters in, in thickness. And again, different parts as it goes from the throat down to the beginning of the, remember, the abdominal cavity. Mm. Uh, it varies a little bit in size, but the, the thickness is about 13 uh, to 16 millimeters. So that's, wow. that little bony area is all that's protecting your heart. Mm. So when you're uh, boxing or in uh, ultimate fighting and things like that, and you're getting hit in the chest, there's only a few uh, millimeters of bony protection there. That's not very much, people. It's not very much. Mm-hmm. And, and all of this, that's why I'm bringing all of this up. There's not very much. And we take for granted, oh, we're solid. We're, you know, a fortress. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not really. And so we talked about the brain for a few seconds. And the brain as an organ has, as it goes down, into the lower portion of the brain, you have what's called the brain stem. Mm-hmm. And the brain stem is where a lot of the organization of the autonomic system is, where the breathing is, where the heart rate is, a number of other things like that that are critical for life. And then the brain stem becomes the spinal cord. And that goes down from the top of the brain. It comes out of the skull. There's a big hole in the skull at the bottom called the foramen magnum. Uh, Foramen is an opening. Magnum is large. It's the biggest opening. And the spinal cord goes about, it can go for about 40 to 50 centimeters in length from the, you know, the bottom of the, of the brainstem down to the, uh, around the second lumbar vertebrae down in your lower back. And that's where the spinal cord ends. And usually the spinal cord itself is about 10 10 millimeters or one centimeter to about 1.5 centimeters in diameter. That's the the extent of the diameter of the spinal cord. Now, it varies in different areas. It gets thinner and thicker in certain parts of the body. But that's all you're dealing with. That's, That's the part of the body that gives you movement and sensation uh, all of these very important things that we're going to talk about in the third segment today when things go wrong. But the canal that the spinal cord lies in, which is made up of the back portion of the vertebrae, you know, we have the cervical vertebrae and the thoracic vertebrae and the lumbar vertebrae and the sacrum and the coccyx, right? Uh, well, at the the way they're designed, there's almost a tunnel that exists in the back of all of these vertebrae, and it's within that bony tunnel, that canal that the spinal cord lies. And that canal, the diameter of that canal in different parts of the spine can be only between 13 and maybe 16 millimeters. Now, sometimes it could be bigger, sometimes it could be smaller. And you see all the problems that people are having now where they you hear diagnosis of stenosis of the spine and all of these things where they're 
closing off those areas where the nerves go down freely and out to the different uh, areas of the body to either uh, cause motor function or to have sensation. When these uh, get uh, smaller, that's when people start having sciatica or numbness and tingling because the nerves are not allowed to do what they do. And there's not much room there. And this is this is one of the biggest ones that, that's important to me. When we see all of these contact sports and people getting hurt, uh, you know, spinal injuries are really devastating for people. And when you see that the canal itself is sometimes 15 millimeters and the and the diameter of the spinal cord is almost that in certain areas, there's not much room uh, to spare. So this is uh, just giving uh, a number of these uh, measurements. My hope today is to bring an awareness that we, our bodies are designed pretty well, but they can be fragile, and it's very important that we always protect our bodies and take care of them and respect them and honor them. And I think when people get a sense of the, the minuscule nature of all of these things that are doing such an amazing job, uh, it, takes, it takes your breath away sometimes. And it's, I mm-hmm. think, important to be aware of that. So that's it for words and numbers. Any thoughts before we move on? <laughs> well, you've put a, a, a new perspective on words and numbers for me today. <laughs> uh, tell me what you mean. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do words and numbers every day with my child's homework, and then now there's a whole new perspective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it. Yeah. So you think you'll change your lifestyle any based yeah. on no, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, I, I, um, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's it, so funny. I love that, <laughs> and it's so true. It's it's one of those things where 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 I think um, being such a, a sickly child growing up, and then having my uh, father pass away at such a young age uh, through um, the issues with the heart and the arteries, um, it, it brought a whole other level of awareness at a very young age. Mm-hmm. about taking care of oneself, about um, what we eat, what we do, the exercise that we do, you know, and how it helps to keep the body functioning at as much as possible towards that optimal health that you keep talking about. Mm-hmm. If not, you know, when you're, I think, a child, it's such an impression that is left with you when you watch someone slowly, um, slowly sort of, I I called it at that time disintegrate mm-hmm. because or deteriorate deteriorate because in those days there you know there were no such thing as the stints that that you have now you know you waited months if not years for open heart surgery and uh, he was on the waiting list so so when you look at that and how the diet had to change and and um, he couldn't walk around the block because there was not enough you know air or and he would get lightheaded. You know, and uh, I'm headed or dizzy. Uh, he wouldn't wait till he got dizzy. <laughs> he learned <laughs> because when he got dizzy, he would fall. You know, right. so so you know he was smart enough not to to wait to that point. Um, but and as a child, you know, not being able to breathe because of asthma, and you know, just knowing that how. In those days, you wouldn't. If you had asthma, you wouldn't go out to run. You wouldn't go out to play. 
which I realized later that that's one of the most important things to do to strengthen the lungs, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, so, so, so when you grow up, I think when I grew up with all this, um, these experiences, some people go, Oh, poor child. And I go, no, 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 no. It was wonderful <laughs> because it's, I think brought me to a whole level, a whole nother level of awareness where we have to take care of ourselves much earlier than we even know. So hence, you know, the, the, the physical activities in children and, and what they eat, the nurturing of a good diet and not too much fats and not too much dairy. I mean, that all comes into play now. And I think it's, it's, um, uh, when you say, you know, does this make any changes? Well, for me, um, it's about verifying and, and confirming that I need to continue doing uh, more and more to continuously approach that optimal health. Yeah, and you bring up some very interesting points because uh, in medicine and science, we're learning more and more about things every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I picked the measurements is the measurements aren't going to really change for the most part. You know, the the size of the sternum or the size of the spinal cord or the size of the arteries, those are going to be pretty much the same in the next 10 years of or 20 years or 30 years. But there are parts of science and medicine that are changing that it's very important for all of our listeners and everybody to uh, be aware of and be up to date on even something you just mentioned a few minutes ago about the exercise. There's so much more we're learning about exercise mm-hmm. now. Uh, nutrition. Nutrition is amazing. Uh, you know, we look at the the carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. And at one point, you know, if you just, and we've done this with Tracy Harrison and our discussions with her and with Kabir Southwick, and you've done this and in, in many of Trinity of Life, where we talk about uh, the different diets that have been out there, the low-carb diet, the high-carb diet, the this diet, the that diet. We're learning now that carbohydrates are probably not as good for us as we thought they were, and fats may actually be better for us, at least good fats Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. may be better for us than they were. So aside from having the understanding of the things that aren't changing, like the, the thickness of the skull, it's important for parents raising children with an awareness to stay on top of what's really out there and not just buy into marketing uh, from drug companies or food companies that are telling you that this is the right thing to eat for your heart or for your brain or for your memory. Very important Mm -hmm. to stay on top of all of that. Mm -hmm. It's a full-time job. It's a full-time job. (laughs) Someone's got to do it or you have to, if you're not going to do it, get a medical guide. There you go. You know, those are your two choices right now. Either do it or get a medical guide. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have to say about that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you ready for uh, chapter three? I am. Or segment three? Segment three. Yes. Let's delve in. (laughs) Delve in. So lately we've been seeing on the social media and and, uh, all over Facebook and a number of other places, people pouring buckets of ice on their heads and challenging people uh, for ALS, they call it. You've seen that, I'm sure, right? Oh, yeah. We've been hearing it for weeks, actually. Right. Yeah, so, on the radio. <laughs> so I thought 
it would be an interesting uh, thing to discuss a little bit of this and see what it's all about uh, and see what's going on and what people are trying to bring. The whole concept is to bring an awareness, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen too much of the awareness that it's been bringing, and I'd like to just bring a little bit of the awareness of the actual disease. It's certainly uh, it's a very important disease. It's called, you hear the term, ALS. And that's an abbreviation for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And those are big words, and that's part of the medical school training that we have to learn. And amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, it's actually a nervous system or a neurological disease that causes muscle weakness and impacts uh, basic physical function. And the way it was named was... uh, when they found when people died and they did the post-mortem and they did the uh, study. And what's the name of that study, Christina? Oh, uh, uh, um, I have to go back. Hang on. It's, it's not an autopsy. Exactly. Right. It right. is. Hang on. Hang on. I'm uh, getting wait. there. I'm getting there. <laughs> take, take your time. Um, it is a ne- necro- necropsy. 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 Right. Necro has to do with death. See, I take good notes. I should have been a medical Uh, student. (laughs) I just can't remember it. That's all. (laughs) That's not important in medicine to remember. (laughs) That's just important to take good notes. I just asked Siri. (laughs) Siri, would you operate on this heart for me? Yes, please. Yes. I'm sorry. At this time, I don't know what's wrong, but. Please try again in another half hour. <laughs> so this is a this is a neurologic disease that's it's devastating. We hmm. we've called it Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh. I see. So so now this is the official name. The official name is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Okay, okay. So I, I, we know it as Lou Gehrig's disease. I mean, for years, that's what... Okay. Exactly. And we know it as that because uh, a very famous baseball player uh, developed this disease. He was very popular mm-hmm. in the world, loved him. And as he had this disease and realized he couldn't play anymore, and he had that famous speech where he was saying goodbye uh, in the in the stadium. So everyone remembered as Lou Gehrig's disease, but it's called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And during the reason it's named that is uh, during the necropsy, they noted uh, that the muscles in the body in various parts of the body that specifically with motor function, um, arms, legs, uh, speech, tongue, breathing, and diaphragm, all started, as you talked about, deteriorating or disintegrating, uh, they would just die because they weren't getting uh, the right uh, stimulus because of this disease. So that was the amyotrophic part. When they looked at the spine and the spinal cord along both sides of the spinal cord on the lateral aspects, on each lateral aspect of the spinal cord, they felt that it was rock hard. And so they called it lateral sclerosis. So it became amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. In the United States, we call it, uh, we do call it ALS. We call it Lou Gehrig's disease, but it's really a motor neuron disease. And just to briefly say, 
out of the brain. We talked about the brain, then we talked about this, the brain stem, and then we talked about the spinal cord, right? Yes. Well, the, well, the spinal cord has two types of, of nerves that uh, come out or come back to the spinal cord. One type are the motor nerves, which make you move a finger, take a deep breath, blink your eyes, uh, or walk. The other type are the sensory, which tell you, I just put my finger onto a burning stove, or that tickles, or that feels cool, uh, or you develop numbness. Those are the sensory nerves. So in this particular disease, the, it's the motor nerves that cause the problem. So that's why it's a motor neuron disease. Mm. What causes this disease? Uh, essentially, in most cases, we don't know. There's about a, you know, a 10, 5, 10, 15% that it's inherited. That is the generic problem. And certainly we're going to find out more that there is more of a generic problem in many cases. But in many other cases, more in the majority of cases, uh, it happens randomly, and we don't necessarily know why, at least at this point. But uh, w- over time, we will learn this. Mm. Uh, there are many famous people that have had ALS. You know, obviously, Lou Gehrig had ALS. And then there's the famous scientist or physicist, uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, uh, who gave us the black, the Big Bang Theory and a number of other uh, important pieces of information about the universe. He's written some amazing books. Now, he he's kind of interesting in the sense that most people develop this disease later on in life. And then from the moment you're diagnosed, it's usually about five or six years, and then you die. It's a fatal disease. There's no cure for it at this point. It just keeps getting worse and worse. But in his case, he's a real aberration. He was diagnosed with this at around age 21, mm. and he, he's now 70 or older than, you know, a little older than 70, but he's still alive and mm. functioning, which is important for us to talk about in a few more minutes. But um, <clears throat> Mao Zedong, the uh, leader of uh, China for many years, had uh, ALS. Mm. David Niven, a famous actor, had mm-hmm. ALS. A number of sports uh, people have had ALS, and politicians have had ALS. The uh, and I don't remember the name, but the producer and and writer and director of uh, Sesame Street mm. had ALS. So, what what do we know? Research is telling us uh, the causes of this can be some kind of a gene mutation, and we're finding out now we actually can find a gene that people with ALS do have an abnormality in that gene or, or gene sequencing. We also see, in other cases, chemical imbalance. There are certain chemicals in the brain. There's a chemical called glutamate, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, bathes the nerves. Sometimes if that gets too high, it causes an uh, inappropriate uh, reaction of the nerves, and then they die, and uh, then we have the ALS. The immune response is very important, and that's how we always have to think about the connections of the body and how it is connected. If the immune system of the body recognizes that various parts of the brain or central nervous system or the motor neurons are not normal, just in its own response, it starts attacking them as if they were foreign uh, foreign to the the self. And this can cause uh, damage and ALS can have them, can happen. Uh, 
lots of other problems. Heredity, as I said, the age is a problem. Environmental factors can be a problem. Smoking may actually have something to do with it. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone that smokes will get ALS, but if you have the generic, I mean, excuse me, genetic uh, mm. off-on switch or the predilection for this and you smoke, you increase your chances. And they've done some studies that show that if you then stop smoking, uh, you may actually improve your chances of not getting it if you haven't already got it. Lead exposure, there's some evidence that the exposure of lead to parts of the brain can cause a problem. So what actually does happen in ALS? Well, it all has to do with the muscles that are needed to move, to speak, to eat, and to breathe. So you can listen to those things and you can say, okay, movement, so I can't move. That, that's going to impair me, but that's not too bad. I, I can still do other things. Speaking, I can figure out ways, as we've seen Stephen Hawking's and technology of development computer systems where he can now speak and many others can speak but eating certainly becomes a problem if you lose your ability to swallow mm-hmm. you know or if you can't swallow correctly the food may go into your lung could cause a pneumonia and uh, bad infections and breathing if you lose your ability to breathe because breathing comes from the nerves affecting the diaphragm and allows you to breathe if you lose that there are things Obviously, that can cause death, but there are things that we can do. We can put in, we can do a tracheostomy and put in a breathing uh, machines that uh, will help with that. Mm. Remember, ALS can't be cured, and it eventually leads to death. Mm. So what are the early symptoms? Well, it's just the same things that we talked about before. person starts noticing difficulty in walking, some weakness in the legs or the feet or the hands, Uh, And they may uh, see a slurring of their speech. And it's not the slurring of speech like if somebody's drunk, but it's the slurring of speech because you don't have the motor function of the tongue. And trouble swallowing. You start getting muscle cramps or twitching in your arms or your legs. And then you might even notice that your posture is getting bad and you have difficulty holding your head up. And certainly breathing problems can occur. But by the time the breathing problems occur, you've probably been to the doctor already. Uh, Now, in some cases, it's very interesting that the mind usually seems to be pretty good and is, is okay. But in certain random cases, people will develop memory problems and decision making and dementia. Uh, as we see with someone like Stephen Hawking's, his mind has stayed very sharp, but all of his other functions have been lost. In certain random cases, people will lose their uh, cognitive reasoning. So if you have any of these symptoms, it's important to go see your doctor. And you or family members should start making some kind of a journal. When did this happen? Uh, what am I noticing? Does it happen all the time? Is it in one arm? Is it in one leg? Is it both? Uh, All of these things, keeping a journal. And then you should eventually go uh, see your doctor. And the doctor at that time will take a history, do a physical examination, and they'll be looking for neurological problems. And they will be testing many things. And as I said, right now we don't have a blood test or a specific test that will diagnose uh, ALS. Now we we are looking at the genome 
And in certain cases, if we see certain symptoms and signs and we can do the genetic testing, we may be much more accurate. But for the most part, the studies will be done will be uh, things like an electromyogram where they check the nervous reaction of the muscles. A needle is put into the muscle and it will test to see how it reacts when it's stimulated and relaxed. And then they'll do nerve conduction studies uh, to see if the nerves are carrying the messages from the brain to the muscles. And then they'll do uh, an MRI or CAT scans and blood and urine tests. But mainly these things are to make sure that you don't have something else. Like you might have weakness in a leg and it'd be be, uh, caused by a herniated disc in your lumbar spine. Remember we talked about there's not much area. So if the disc is pushing on the spine and the motor part isn't working correctly, then the muscle may get weak. But that doesn't mean it's ALS. So that's why the doctor will want to go through this. And they may also do a spinal top, spinal tap, uh, muscle biopsy. All of these things are mainly to rule out other diseases. When you go to your doctor, the doctor will probably send you to another doctor. So if you go to your primary care doctor to do the initial, they may end up sending you after doing these tests to a neurologist who specializes in brain and muscle uh, nerve disorders. And remember, we talked with Dr. Philip Enti um, early on in one of our shows. We talked about migraines, but he's a neurologist and he works in this area. And then once you start going through the diagnosis, you'll, you'll start to develop a team of people that will be on your team to help with many of the things that are going to uh, approach you with complications and side effects and problems that you're going to have as all of the disease uh, progresses. And depending if you have the hereditary generic, genetic type, that may progress in five years. And if you have the others uh, type for other reasons, it may take a lifetime. So you have to be prepared to uh, deal with this and start developing a team. And if, certainly your doctors will help you with that. And the team will also consist of people like occupational therapists, speech therapists, uh, physical therapists, psychologists, sociologists, because the family needs to also be part of this. Um, you'd also, if you get diagnosed with this at some point, I think one of the important things to do is to grieve. So when you get this diagnosis, it's not an easy thing. It's a, it's a death sentence, and it's, a, it's not an easy uh, path. So it, it's important to take time to grieve and experience a, a little bit of mourning and grief for your own life and your own body and all of the things that you're about. At the same time, we're always looking for things that can improve the process. So being helpful and joining support groups and, and then developing and making decisions that we've talked about in other talks about how you want to prepare for death having a living will and uh, a number of other things that you want to get people to know as you get to a point where you can't express yourself anymore and to the time when you're going to potentially die. Uh, Certainly, there are really very few medications. In fact, there is only one at this time. It's called, and I'm going to read this carefully, real 
Rilluzole or Rilutec. And it's, it's the only drug that the Food and Drug Administration is allowing right now. Uh, and it, again, does not cure. All it does is potentially slow the progression of the disease. And the doctor may at some point, uh, or your team of doctors, may give you other medications because you may developing complications. You may have constipation. You may have fatigue. You may have uh, you know, depression sleep disorders, all sorts of things. You may end up on a lot of medications, and it's important to have a team that's working with you to make sure that those medications are all being given correctly and appropriately and the therapies that you're going through. So this comes back to um, the pouring the ice on the heads. And one of the things that has been interesting about this for me, first of all, they, as of a few days ago, they've actually uh, brought in about over $88 million. Now, the National Institute of Health uh, gives money to the ALS foundations, and that budget uh, is not even half of that. So the, the amount that's combined with the budget for the NIH and this amount of money is going to be fantastic in terms of research. Now, there's some controversy about it. Some people say, why are we spending, why are we giving money to a disease that only affects uh, maybe 200,000 people rather than looking at other diseases? Well, it's very important. You know, one of the things I learned statistically in medicine, if I had to come up to someone in the emergency department and I had to tell them that we've diagnosed a brain tumor and the statistics show that there's only one in 50 million people that get this. That doesn't matter to the person that I'm telling it to. They don't care about the other number of people that didn't get it. Once they have it, they care about it. So this is a very important disease. And the controversy about spending money on this may not be important to certain people, but certainly to the people that have it and to the families of those people and to future generations of people that may get this. You know, each if someone has hereditary type of ALS, their children have a 50% chance of getting it. So it's really important that we know about this disease. <clears throat> and what's going to happen with this now? So the other problem that and the controversy about the this whole process is some people don't want to recognize this because a lot of the tests are done on animals to see what's going on. So a lot of the animals rights people are appropriate in saying, why are we testing animals? We shouldn't be doing that. And therefore I don't want to spend money on a cause that's testing animals. Well, the good news is that because of all of this money, there are a number of 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 researchers that are doing studies on genes and genetics and drugs that will be uh, looked at to possibly diagnose and then prevent and treat the disorder. So I'm very happy about the possibilities that we've got a lot of testing going on now. And some of the, the groups like the ALS uh, Therapy Development Institute and uh, one of the Harvard Institutes are all promising to stop using uh, 
animal studies and look at potential stem cell studies. So there's a lot of promise in the future for this. And I think that's all I want to talk about today. We've covered a few things, some uh, anatomical terms, some measurements. We talked about ALS. Mm. Any thoughts? Wow. Here, here I keep hearing ALS, but I've always known it as Lou Gehrig's disease. Correct. So Not anymore. You. Not anymore. Wow. Not anymore. You're going to be able, and let me hear you say it. Oh, oh dear. See, now I've got to go back and, and say it correctly. That's um, right. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Is that amyo? Yes. Okay, yes. amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Yes. See, as long as I have my notes. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Wow, that's amazing. That's, well, it's, that's uh, inside the doctor's box today, ooh. inside the doctor's bag. Well, all of you people who are making those wonderful donations out there, now you know exactly what it's for. Yeah, good things are happening, actually. They're looking more at the genetics, and they're going to do stem cell testing on people that actually have ALS. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot that's going to come out of this. And uh, I'm very hopeful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, even if they can find something to support those individuals that might be dealing with it right now, eh, any little bit helps, right? Any little bit helps. Mm. I know we've uh, talked a lot today, so I'm going to just tell <laughs> everyone thank you for uh, being with us, honoring my healers and my uh, teachers for allowing me to be where I am today. I want to thank Christina and Segovia and all of Yoga Hub and Magical Medical Tour for uh, putting on this program to help people uh, in their search for optimal health. So until mm-hmm. next time, I bid you all optimal health. Well, thank you, Dr. Glenn Wolbin. It's uh, for enlightening us on the next level. I mean, this is magnificent. You always think that that we... We've heard it before, we know it, but boy, it always sounds new. <laughs> thank you so much. And of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. Please take a moment and connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. I do encourage you to do so because those are the these uh, exercises are so simple and you can do it anywhere that you are and anytime. Again, we're grateful for your continuous support. Please uh, give us a call with your comments, suggestions at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.